Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today, we talk with Tina Ruley. She is an associate professor in the philosophy department at UC Davis. She works in normative and applied ethics and bioethics with a focus on reproductive and population ethics, which is the area of ethics that explores what, if any, moral value there is in creating new lives. She received her PhD from Yale University and did her postdoctoral training at the NIH Bioethics Department. In this episode, we explore three main topics, the ethics of adoption and procreation, anti-vaxxers and abortion rights, and the use of race and genomics. More broadly, we touch on the importance of crafting strong arguments and the need to consider why an opposing opinion might be correct. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Tina Ruli. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Brent Keller, for having me. Happy to be here. We would love to hear a little bit more about your story. What got you interested in ethics? How did you get to Davis? And overall, how did you end up where you are now? Yeah, so actually, I am a first-gen college student, and when I was in high school, I was um, recommended to this philosophy summer camp by my government high school teacher. And so I spent a week at the University of Colorado Boulder doing philosophy and fell in love with it. So I probably was the first first gen person to go to college knowing she'd be a philosophy major without having ever taken a philosophy class at the college level. And ethics really stuck with me. So I went on to do my PhD in ethics and that's where I am. That's why I'm here today working in ethics still. So it's amazing. So one of your major topics you research is the moral duty to adopt. Could you walk us through your viewpoint on that and some of the papers you've written about that? Yeah, sure. So that was actually the topic of my dissertation for my PhD. So I argued that people who want to have children should adopt rather than procreate. And my early work was about that issue. So I had you know, a paper, I, I think it's one of my bigger papers coming out of that work that asked the reader to imagine that um, you're thinking of having children. And at that moment, you find out that there's an infant who's been dropped off at the local fire station, and you could adopt them uh, with little financial, legal, or logistical burden at all, or you could have your own child. And the question is, you know, what does morality have to say about a choice like that? So should you take in this existing person who's in very critical need of a family, or can you create a brand new person who wouldn't exist otherwise, but who, once they exist, now has needs that you need to fulfill? And so... There's this big literature in philosophy and ethics about the duty to rescue. And the thought is that we have this duty to meet people's very important life needs, you know, their critical needs, when it would be minimally costly to us to do so. And so I thought there was something like a duty to rescue here with the adoption case. And the reason I simplified the case in this paper the way I did was to set aside the typical financial and legal costs of adoption and just to isolate so that we could examine the moral significance of genetic relatedness. So the question was, in a situation like this, does the fact that you'd be genetically related to your own child, does that override a seemingly you know, a existing duty to adopt an existing child instead? So I really wanted to narrow down and focus on the moral significance of genetic relatedness. And so in that paper, broadly, I argue that it doesn't override a duty to adopt. While it might have some significance, it's just not the the weightiest kind of interest that could trump or override meeting somebody else's critical needs when you're in a position to do so. So that was the fo- focus of that early work. And um, the work on the moral significance of genetic relatedness has been relevant to other work I've done in reproductive ethics as well. So it's kind of a nice jumping off board to doing other stuff as well. And how do you factor in declining birth rates and our aging population in the argument for the moral imperative to adopt? Yeah, so, well, there's several things that adoption can be really compatible with uh, population issues in the U.S., for instance. So you could adopt children internationally. That's one way to increase the number of young people in the country, if that's a concern. And also, there are other ways to 
increased population when you have population rates declining. Just in general, having uh, more liberal immigration policies also increases the population in a country. So even if you had you know, a country that was widely adopting children rather than procreating, there's just other avenues for increasing your population. So you know, that this, this talk of underpopulation um, is kind of a new thing that's just arisen in the last couple of years. And, and honestly, I think it's a manufactured crisis. It's really a worry about um, a declining white demographic in the U.S. when we have immigration solutions that could increase our population. It's just, you know, some people don't, I don't think this, but some people don't think that immigration is the way to increase population because they're worried about changing our culture or changing our racial demographics. That makes sense. What were some of the main focus points of the reason to adopt versus the like to have your own child. Cause I know you talked about physical characteristics and you kind of went down a list. Could you go over a few of those and maybe why some of those don't hold up to the moral imperative to adopt? Yeah, good. So in this paper that I'm talking about, I surveyed the reasons people give for wanting to have a genetically related child or a biologically related child rather than adopting. And first of all, how did I identify those reasons? Well, I just talked to people. And some of the reasons they gave me, I thought were initially immediately bad, but they were they were common. So it was worth putting a little philosophical attention on them. So one was just um, people were saying, well, don't you want your child to look like you? And I thought, well, that's that's quite a superficial reason not to instead rescue or help an existing child in need. But I wanted to interrogate that. And one thing I tried to do was interpret that in a more um, charitable manner. So not see it as, for instance, someone expressing their own narcissism, like, oh, I'm so beautiful. I hope my children are beautiful like me or something like that. But rather, maybe what they're expressing is a desire to have a family resemblance uh, with, with their children and to share maybe that family resemblance is symbolic of a certain kind of connectedness. So like that's one of the things I tried to do is make a more a richer story around this, make sense of it, but then suggest that adopted children are just as equally capable of sharing family resemblance if you broaden your sense of what a family is. So adopted children oftentimes pick up the mannerisms of their family members, you know, their forms of speech, the, the sort of micro expressions. Um, obviously, they can take on the interests and customs and values of their family. So I think adopted children can also stand in this relationship of family resemblance with their adoptive family. So that's just one example. I also look at things like psychological similarity. So sometimes People want their children to be athletic like they are or be musical like they are. And they believe that these things are transmitted genetically. And so their chances of having a musical child are going to be higher given that they're musical or something like that. And that may or may not be true. I mean, our, our understanding of <laughs> the heritability of these sorts of, of traits is really sketchy at best. But even if you assume it's true that if you're musical and you have a biological child, that child is more likely to be musical than an adopted child. Assume that's true. Here's what I say. I say our preferences for the kinds of ways our children will be and the character traits that they'll have and the things that they'll be interested in, they have to be held with flexibility. Because, I mean, that's to, to like very strongly prefer your child play the violin or something like that, such that it's the kind of desire that could override a duty to rescue a different child instead. You'd have to hold that so rigidly for it to have that kind of trumping value. But then we also think that Adhering so strongly to your preferences for what your children are going to do or who they're going to become is actually in tension with being a good parent. We think parents should let their children be who they want to be and do the things they want to do. So that's what I try to show is that like strongly preferring certain outcomes for your children, in fact, are in tension with uh, what we say is a normative understanding of what parenthood is, what is an ideal understanding of how parents should hold their attitudes toward their children. That makes sense. I think there's been a lot of examples in recent times of parents enforcing their desires on their children. And that is part of the aim of the podcast to show listeners other options in academia, not just becoming a doctor or things like that. And one more, uh, I guess, piece on the moral duty, the moral responsibility to adopt. Could you speak to some real life, I guess, marketing applications? How do you get people in a large scale to see this viewpoint and then to take action on it. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that is a little bit outside my wheelhouse. I'm not a marketer and I'm not a sociologist or a psychologist. So like persuading people is not, um, I mean, I try to persuade people by reason 
and and I maybe idealistically hope that some people are persuaded by reason, but I think we know that a lot of people aren't. Um, so so yeah, like how to go about persuading people to change their minds about things like this is a difficult question. Um, I do know that. My written work has changed people my people's minds. I've been emailed by many people. I've been told by my students who read this paper um, that it changed their opinions about things. So I think that's the best we can do as philosophers is just make reasoned arguments and hope others take it up and maybe people more savvy at convincing people in ways that are not reason-based um, might have better answers for how to do that than I do. Moving on from the moral duty to adopt to your stance on anti-vaxxers who are also pro-life. Could you explain to us the moral dilemma you have found there? Yeah. So I, along with a co-author, his name is Professor Steve Campbell. He's at Bentley University. We just recently published a paper looking at the my body, my choice rhetoric of the COVID anti-vaxxers. So they stole that slogan, my body, my choice from the abortion rights movement. And the implication, I think, in stealing that slogan was that people who oppose government intrusion on bodily autonomy rights of women and childbearers, that they're somehow being hypocritical if they also support vaccine mandates. And so we just wanted to offer a deeper look at what was seemingly superficial rhetoric, but was kind of catchy, you know, it was out there in the public space. So we assessed vaccine mandates and abortion restrictions along two dimensions. So we looked at how intrusive they are on bodily autonomy and how much harm they prevent. And we argue that even if you grant that fetuses have full moral status, that they are moral persons, which the majority of Americans don't believe when it comes to early stage fetuses, but even if you grant that to your opponent, the arguments against vaccine mandates are much weaker than the arguments against abortion restriction when you're concerned about bodily autonomy intrusion. And this is because vaccine mandates are just moderately invasive, and most mandates have exemptions, they offer alternatives to getting vaccinated, they're low cost, the vaccines were free in the U.S., and very low risk when it comes to health. But the bodily autonomy violations of mandated gestation, pregnancy, and labor are extremely invasive, and we detail that in the paper. So when it comes to harm prevention, which is the second thing we looked at, gestation mandates, that's what we call abortion restrictions, and vaccine mandates are on a moral par. So abortion restrictions, if you look if you look at per individual acting, save a life with certainty. That's, that's a good thing. But vaccine mandates per individual acting decrease the risk of a range of harms from, you know, mild il illness to death itself for many, many people in a potential chain of transmission that can compound. So that's why we say they're on a par because it's hard to quantify, you know, um, it's hard to compare, you know, saving one particular life with saving many, many people from the chance of a range of illnesses, including death, right? Um, so given the far more intrusive bodily autonomy violations of abortion restrictions for what we say is a similar moral payoff when it comes to harm prevention, then our conclusion is that if you're anti-vax for reasons of bodily autonomy, you should be pro-choice on abortion, but the, re the reverse doesn't hold. So you could be anti-abortion restrictions for reasons of bodily autonomy, but think that vaccine mandates are just not that intrusive, that they're not that big of a deal. So we just tried to put a little more rigor around that kind of debate. And how would you respond to a pro-lifer who says that abortion is different from the anti-vax movement because it's affecting another life form? Yeah, I think, you know, what they're forgetting is that transmitting COVID to one another is also harming other life forms. Like maybe maybe the difference is just it's not salient. It's not psychologically obvious. But if you went to the grocery store unvaccinated and unmasked and had COVID, for all you know, you might have killed the little grandma in the bread aisle, right? You just never saw that you did it. So, I mean, that's why people care about vaccine mandates. They also save lives. So now moving on to a third topic, your discussion on race and genetics. And could you walk us through how those are intertwined or possibly not intertwined? Yeah. So I have a paper in progress right now, so it's not published yet. But um, in that paper, I'm trying to make sense of the use of race in genomic science. So geneticists have these large databases of genomic samples from people where they look to see if there's an association between certain gene variants and certain traits and diseases. 
And they need a lot of people in these databases to power the studies because whatever gene variants that there are, they, they make a very small contribution to a certain trait. So you just need tons and tons of people to make these associations. So we have these databases filled with people, but it turns out that the majority of them, over 90% of the databases include people of European descent only. Um, so there's a call now to racially diversify these genomic databases so that the findings from these studies can be applicable to everybody. And then the question I'm tackling in the paper is, how do you square this call for racial diversity in the genomic databases with the dominant and correct view that race is not biologically real, it's merely a social construction? So if race isn't biologically real, then why do we need racial diversity in genomic databases to get good science? That's the question. And so I try to explain how this is possible in the paper by making an, an analogy to the color spectrum. So I say, for instance, that colors are socially constructed categories. The light spectrum itself is just this smooth gradient, right? And we, for cultural reasons, have put discrete color categories on top of it, blue, red, you know, or even more fine, finer grain categories like aqua or pink or something like that, right? And these color names and types actually vary by culture. Different languages have different colors. So that's some evidence that colors are socially constructed. Nature itself, the spectrum isn't carved so neatly at the joints to match our color names. But nonetheless, colors, which are not physically real, and the diversity of colors can stand in. They can be a proxy for underlying wavelength diversity, which is real. So you know that if you have red and green objects, you have more wavelength diversity in your collection than if you had all red objects. And race in genomic science can be seen like this. So you know that if you have racial diversity, which is a proxy for global diversity, you'll just get more genomic diversity in your database. Uh, but the application of that proxy of race as a prox proxy for genetic variation is very, very limited. It's just helpful in casting a broad net for diverse genomic samples and databases. But what that doesn't license is use of racial diagnosing of individuals in the clinical setting. And so that's what I try to make really clear in the paper. In your last answer, you briefly mentioned that the correct belief of race is that it is a social construction. Could you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah. So the dominant view of what race is, is that race is a socially constructed category, meaning it's real, but it has its reality based in our social practices. So other things that are socially constructed are is like money, for instance. Um, we've decided that paper minted in a certain way from a certain institution has value and so sort of collectively intersubjectively have decided that has value, that paper doesn't have value independent of that social practice, right? Another example is nationality. We've decided that, you know, if you're born in a certain place, you get these rights. And if you're born in a different place, you get these other rights. Uh, we've collectively decided that historically, you know, through a process. Um, so that a really quick thing to point out with both of those examples is that people make the mistake of thinking that if something is socially constructed, A, it's not real, and B, you can just change it or discard it if you want. But I promise you, you can't, you can't make Monopoly money be real money, and um, you can't change your nationality, right? You're not going to get citizenships from so citizenship rights from somewhere else just because you want it. So that's the first thing. So race is like that. These are categories we've used to define and categorize people that actually don't have a biological basis. So if you look for a race gene that says, you know, why uh, – that that picks out Asian people or black people or white people, you just don't find one. Genetic variation is gradual. They say it's clinal. You don't find discrete genetic variation that gives you something like a race. So that's why, uh, and there's lots of historical evidence for the social construction of race to support this. And, you know, the census categories, for instance, in the U.S. have changed, I think, over 20 times in 200 years. Um, and you can see them changing with the political needs of uh, of America, for instance. So what it really shows is, it, is that race is this category we've invented. And in fact, we've invented it for political purposes to assign people certain positions in society. How do you think the application of race should differ in clinical versus research applications? Yeah. So, you know, as I was saying, race can be helpful in in these GWAS studies. Um, GWAS means genome-wide association studies. And those are those large database studies that I mentioned earlier. Um, but it's really not going to be useful in the individual clinical setting. 
Because here's what we know. We know that certain populations of people might have a higher probability of having certain gene variants in that population. But that doesn't mean that any particular person from that population has a higher chance of having those gene variants. So moving from this population level statistical claim that say, you know, people in population A have a higher frequency of this trait or this gene to here's a person from population A and I'm going to assume that they are more likely to have this trait or gene, that's known as the ecological fallacy. You just can't move from group-level statistics to individual inferences about a person. So what's happening in the clinical setting, though, is doctors are committing this ecological fallacy. They're hearing something like, um, black people are more likely to have hypertension, and then they're getting a, a black patient in the, in the clinical setting and maybe preemptively treating them for hypertension. But they're making a... a they're making a mistake when they do that. So that's why I really worry about moving from the claim that race can be a proxy in this very limited population level view to it meaning anything in the clinical setting. That makes a lot of sense. That's why I think your analogy with color and race is so good because a black person could be from so many different regions right? right. and genetic predisposition to different mutations, outcomes, conditions, whatever it may be will vary so much within those regions. So I think it's a perfect analogy and it worked really well there. Yeah, and just an example of that is, you know, as you said, black people in particular are very genetically diverse given their migration history and the history of, you know, being being um, enslaved. And so um, a vivid example of this is there's this assumption that cystic fibrosis, which is this um, genetic lung disease, it's a very terrible disease, that it's a white disease. And so there, um, Dorothy Roberts in her book, Fatal Invention, who's, she's talking about race and medicine in that book, she gives a case of this six-year-old girl who's black who had this, this chronic lung disease, and no one could figure out what was wrong with her. And then one day, uh, a pulmonologist saw her lung scan, and he didn't know her race. He only knew, he just saw the scan, and he said, who's this little kid with cystic fibrosis? And so they were able to diagnose her with cystic fibrosis once they took race out of the equation. So this is the danger of doing race-based medicine is that you're really overlooking like so much genomic and genetic variation within a particular person who might present as you know, racially unambiguous. It's, it's so crazy. My sister was telling me a story where very recently, this just changed, but there was an assumption that black people had higher pain tolerances and also literally thicker skin. And it was completely basis and there was malpractice that occurred because of those assumptions without any medical basis. Yeah. Those assumptions are based on the mistreatment of slaves for medical purposes. And they they have persisted to this day. So in my philosophy of race class, I, I teach that statistic. I can't pull it out of my pocket at the moment, but but they surveyed white medical students very recently, and still a very large proportion of them believe that blacks have higher pain toler tolerance and have thicker skin. So we have actually like very racist assumptions in medicine to this day. Yeah, that's mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah, that's why we have to research and talk about this stuff because we've got to get rid of it. Definitely. I was shocked when my sister first told me that. Yeah, it's really upsetting. And moving to some broader questions, you mentioned in your argument for the moral duty to adopt how you took out the financial factors involved with adoption. How do you determine what is important to address when crafting an ethical or philosophical question and argument? Yeah, so it depends on what you want to look at. You know, So in that case, I really wanted to test the question of whether genetic relatedness was morally significant. And so you want to craft an example that strips away all the other variables that might be playing a role in you figuring out what to do or what your intuitions are about a case. It's just like a scientific experiment. So let's, so I, this is a real case. In seventh grade, my science experiment for the science fair was to see whether playing music to your plants helped them grow. So I had the control plants that didn't get any music and I got, and I had the the test plants that had Guns N' Roses played to them, right? And here's the thing: if I had, the, if I had not held the variables fixed, or maybe the better way of putting it, putting it is, if I had confounded the variables, if in addition to playing Guns N' Roses to, you know, plants B, I had given them more water and more sunlight, I would not be able to isolate whether music 
was making a difference here. So we as philosophers do the very same thing when we build thought experiments, when we think through philosophical examples. We try to isolate the variable we're trying to test to see whether it changes your intuitions about the case. And the Guns N' Roses plants did grow better than the non-Guns N' Roses plants. So draw whatever conclusion you want from that. How do you also determine the analogies that you use in your papers? Do you have a creative process that you use? Because I don't think many people would think about some of these different analogies that you come up with. Yeah. There's a little bit of magic in it. I, I think some of it is just staying curious and reading broadly. And then you'll you'll have like the stroke of inspiration that'll come to you when you're not looking for it. So the color spectrum analogy with race, that actually came out of the fact that um, I like to paint and I'm kind of obsessed with color and the science of color. And I had just gotten this book on the color spectrum and was reading it while at the same time writing this race book. And it just occurred to me that color is very much like race in that way. It's a socially constructed category that can map onto this uh, physical reality that is gradual in nature. And we can try to make some sense of, uh, about the relationship between those two things. So so I think by staying curious and just reading a lot and being interested in a lot of things, you can, you can find these synergies between different disciplines. Um, whereas if you were just thinking narrowly, maybe you wouldn't have that creative inspiration. Piggybacking off of the creativity aspect, what does the research process look like for philosophers? Yeah, that's a great question, because a lot of people, when I tell them, you know, I'm doing research, they really want to know what that looks like for a philosopher. And, um, you know, do we have labs? Do we do experiments? So there are some experimental philosophers, but the majority of us don't have labs or do experiments. Uh, what you usually do is, you know, first of all, you, you've gained an expertise in an area because you've been studying it for a long time, you've been publishing on it. So what you do is you leverage that already existing area of expertise to try to find new debates or new avenues to expand your research. Um, so a lot of philosophy is about reading very widely to see what others have had to say about an issue, um, and then writing up your own ideas, workshopping those ideas with others, so presenting those papers at conferences or workshops, getting devastatingly criticized, incorporating feedback, you know, re reworking your arguments in light of criticism, and making your argument stronger. So that's kind of, that's what the research process looks like for a philosopher. It's a lot of reading and writing, but it's collaborative too, because you, you bounce your ideas off of other people and you get their feedback. How would an undergraduate get involved in that if there's no lab for philosophy research? Yeah, uh, that, that can be tough. So I do have undergraduates approach me for internships and, you know, it's tough because we don't have funding for internships like a lot of, I, I think a lot of labs do. But there are several things you can do if you want to do philosophy. One, of course, is to take philosophy classes, consider becoming a major, get involved in um, philosophy club. And another is to think about doing a senior honors thesis with a professor that you really like, and that will give you some extra research opportunity to work on something that you want, want to work on. And it is still worth approaching your professors to see if they need a research assistant. Uh, we don't always need that in philosophy, but sometimes we do. And so sometimes there's an opportunity there. What is your overall goal with these papers? Who is your audience? What real life impacts do you hope to come from your work? Yeah, that's a great question. So my goal is always to make good arguments that persuade people on important topics. So I'm an applied ethicist and I, I care about real life topics and I, I want to make provocative, difficult dilemmas clear and precise. So that's my goal in writing. And I do think my work has had real life impact. I mean, maybe it's only incremental, but I do think some of the papers I've published have changed people's minds. People have told me that. I know a lot of people are teaching the adoption paper, for instance, even though I was a told originally when I first wrote it that it was not a serious subject. So I'm glad I persisted. I'm glad I helped change some people's minds. Um, I have some work on the ethics of gene editing in humans. Um, that's getting some attention from geneticists. So for instance, I'm um, in March, I'm going to be in London at the Royal Academy of Science and Medicine at a genetics conference talking about the ethics of gene editing with the hope that that will shape some policy there. Um, the paper on vaccines and abortion also got some news attention. We got a little write-up in um, an NPR article, and I was interviewed um, by reporters to discuss the ideas behind the My Body, My Choice rhetoric. So, you know, the hope is that by doing this rigorous work by publishing it in journals and talking to various outlets that you can make a little difference here or there. What is your stance on the use of gene editing and and where the future is going with it? 
Yeah. So, so gene editing has a lot of applications. So there is gene editing in existing humans to help treat their diseases. And I'm all for that. But there's also reproductive applications of gene editing. And this is where you take either a sperm or an egg or an embryo that's created from them and you edit the genes, so to speak. Um, edit, is, edit is like not a great word because it connotes precision where we don't have precision with this technology. But at any rate, that's the word people are using. So so anyway, you edit an embryo with the hope that an embryo that would have had some genetic disease will now have that disease edited out of them. And a lot of people have been saying that we should do this kind of embryo editing because it will save people's lives. It'll say it'll you know save them from various monogenic diseases. I argue that you're not saving lives by doing this. What you're doing is creating lives that may be free of some defect where that life was not inevitable in the first place. To save a life is to make someone better who otherwise would have been worse off. But in this case, you're just creating a person. You didn't have to create that person. Their existence wasn't on the way, so to speak, or inevitable. So we should be really honest about what this technology is. It's a procreative technology. Uh, it allows some people to have children who are genetically related to them, where otherwise their genetically related children might have a particular disease. But what it's not doing is saving lives. And so if we ratchet down the rhetoric, we have many, many more technologies out there and medicines out there that do save lives. Maybe we should be putting our limited resources into actually saving lives rather than uh, creating people who wouldn't otherwise exist when you know you have other options for having children. So it seems like prospective parents would go to someone like a genetic counselor and be, what are my risks? Once they find their risks, the hope is that some of these gene editing technologies could eliminate some of those potential harms that their baby would experience. So your point is you should go adopt instead, correct? Yeah, well, that's one option. The other is you can, so you actually have several options. You could get an, let's say it's the female partner who um, carries the gene for some serious disease. You can use an egg donor and use the father's sperm. Vice versa, you could use a sperm donor and the, the mother's egg. So you, adoption isn't the only thing on the table. Gay meat donation, that's gay meats are egg and sperm, is also on the table. But there already exists a technology that can allow people to have genetically related children who are healthy. And that's called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. That's where we create a bunch of embryos from the intended parents. And then we screen the embryos for the disease in question. And we only implant the embryos that are disease-free. So using gene editing to create healthy genetically related children is redundant because we already have a technology that does all this work. So that's yet another argument against it. Why are we creating a new technology to, ad to address an issue that's already been addressed? It seems like a waste of medical resources. I could also see an argument that it's not truly genetically related at that point, too. How, how come? Because if you are editing your genes that you gave to that embryo, I th could see that not being as genetically related as having the baby unedited or embryo unedited. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so someone who really cares about genetic relatedness, here's this little glitch is that you've actually changed the genes, right? Yeah. So you've sort of at least minimized or, or reduced the genetic relatedness. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah. And I also know with CRISPR, there's a lot of worry about what the future of that technology could look like. Like with designer babies, who's going to have access to that and what is that going to look like long term? Yeah, exactly. So there's all these objections to it's called heritable human genome editing using using CRISPR or other gene editing technologies in creating humans, including this worry about designer babies that that we're we're on the slippery slope from using it only to treat serious monogenic diseases to now selectively creating children who are I don't know more athletic, more beautiful, taller, this that and the other thing. So given so that's kind of the point of my paper is I don't really weigh in on how serious that debate is. But I just say there's all these object objections to using the technology in this way, and it's redundant to existing technologies we already have. So what are we doing? We, we have people dying of malaria, we, of easily preventable diseases. Why is our money going into this fancy new technology rather than doing the things that will actually save lives and aren't, and aren't objectionable in a variety of ways, as you mentioned? And is that a trend that you've seen a lot of, of there are technologies that work? 
and there are issues that may be more impactful in terms of life, life ability to save, but they just don't get enough media attention. They don't have the same allure, and so they get neglected. Yes, absolutely. It's a huge problem. There was a thing known in the 90s as the 10, 1090 gap. And the thought was that, um, I might get it backwards, but something like um, 10% of the global disease burden gets 90% of the funding. And I don't know if there's still a 1090 gap today. I would imagine it's, there's still some sort of gap, right? Maybe it's not 1090, maybe it's 8020 or something like that, right? But yeah, we, um, you know, why do we invest in these brand new novel, interesting technologies? Because there's money in it, because rich nations have that luxury to do that. But we're still not meeting basic global disease burden um, issues like we could by spending that money more effectively or efficiently. I was reading a book over break and it was talking about like qual scores, which is, I guess, a similar like metric in terms of impact and how there's so much money going to things that have such low impact per dollar on the lives they're going to, yet they continually over the past hundred years will always get more funding. Yeah. Yep. No matter what kind of marketing campaigns you do, it just yep. almost seems like it's human nature. Yeah. I mean, there's money, there's money in inventing this technologies for big pharmaceutical companies and researchers and there's professional incentives to engage on these, quote, sexy topics rather than just, you know, making sure there are more mosquito nets so, pe so fewer people get malaria, right? That's kind of mundane and uninteresting to people. Yeah. And I've even heard other podcasters talk about, or doctors who appear on podcasts talk about how we have generic drugs for certain diseases that we kind of suppress the information around because the same drug companies are now creating patented drugs for those same diseases and selling that to the hospitals, the doctors to push over, like push out the patented version versus the generic version because they can make the money on the patented one exactly. versus the generic one. Yeah. Sometimes what they'll do is they'll just repackage generic medicines. Yeah. They'll just recombine them and then they get a new patent and then they get the exclusive monetary rights to that medicine for 10 years. Yeah. So yeah. It's so crazy. Yeah. When you're comparing the reason to adopt against the desire to have a genetically related kid, it seems like there isn't a huge argument to have a genetically related kid. Could you speak on the one argument you did think holds up to scrutiny, being women wanting to experience pregnancy? Yeah. So this requires a little bit more background into mm -hmm. the paper. A very standard view of the duty to rescue is that, you know, we have this really strong, compelling moral duty to help people when we're able to, but sometimes we don't have to. And making sense of when we don't have to is important. So the thought is, um, you know, with $1,000, for instance, you could save you could save a life. Actually, they, they think for $4,000, you can save a life. That's the latest statistic. So let's go with 4000 for $4,000, you could probably pay for a class at a community college though, right? And, and many of us think that, look, you're allowed to invest in your own projects that have some deep significance to your own life and not instead maximize and, and rescue people. So you don't have to be rescuing people at all times. You have this moral permission to sometimes invest in yourself. And projects, things that have this central significance to your life's character um, or, you know, um, allow you to realize your most closely held values. Those are the kinds of things that can compete with a duty to rescue. Hmm. So that's the standard I'm using in this paper. I'm saying, what interest is it that people have in having, say, a genetically related child or a biologically related child that could rise to the level of a project, have some central significance in their life? And I say, look, looking like your children, that doesn't rise to the level, right? Here's one thing people have articulated. Um, women or people who can bear children have oftentimes said that being able to, to experience and realize that bodily capacity is central to their life. It's something they, that they deeply, deeply desire, and it's a very unique experience. There's nothing else like it, right? So it can't be substituted in, in any other way. And so I say, I kind of concede. I don't argue for it force, forcefully, but I say, well, this is the kind of thing that looks like it could be a project. It could be that it's very important for a particular person to get to experience being pregnant and giving childbirth. 
And so I say there's like a one-time possible exception for people who want that experience. I mean, a lot of the argument for having that experience is based on its, on its uniqueness, that there's nothing else like that that our bodies can do. So that's why I say it's a one-time exception, because then once you've done it, you've experienced it. So the uniqueness value is now drops out. But yeah, it looks like you know maybe there's a pregnancy exemption one time for the duty to adopt. Could there be a male equivalent? Yeah, so there's no male equivalent. So I think, you know, if you're a male in a heterosexual relationship and your partner really wants to experience pregnancy, uh, you you get to experience it with her, right? But there's no there's no male equivalent. It's just, you know, nature is unequal in this way. Even if the man wants to be there through the entire process with his wife or whoever he's having the baby with, meaning when he's envisioning his future, he wants to have that process of start to finish that is central to his viewpoint of, I want to not only create the child, but be there by my wife through the entire process of creating the nest, so to speak, at the house, and then eventually having the baby and raising it. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing is, no man has any entitlement to get that from their wife, mm-hmm. right? So a man might get a permission to have that experience because she has a permission to have that experience, morally speaking, right? Mm-hmm. But his desire for that is in no way going to entitle him to that experience because it's all going to depend on whether she wants that in the first place. Taking it a little bit more broadly now, what advice do you have to students who want to study philosophy And along with that, you mentioned how reading is central to the study of philosophy. How do you recommend students go about reading? Uh, It's something, it sounds trivial, but at least in my circle, it seems like reading is not a common practice and it's a declining thing to do in general. Oh no, I'm really, really sad to hear that. Um, Let me take up the reading question first, because I think it's related to the question of, you know, um, what the advice I would give to students who want to study philosophy. Um, Yeah, reading is a big part of doing philosophy and not just reading, reading very, very carefully with scrutiny. So I always tell my students that reading in philosophy is very different than reading in any other discipline because philosophers strive for precision in all their words. So every single word and every single sentence has been carefully, carefully picked to convey the meaning it's supposed to convey with precision. And so when you read in philosophy, you have to take your time. You have to read slowly. In fact, you should read the article twice, at least. Um, so that's relevant to you know the advice I would give to people who want to do philosophy. It really has to be the kind of thing where you're willing to be meticulous. You're willing to take that extra careful time to really understand someone's argument. And philosophy is all about critiquing and arguing. It's all about someone trying to persuade you of their argument. So you're not just reading passively, you're actively engaging with the ideas and thinking of objections and thinking of ways of reconstructing their argument in a stronger way, for instance. Um, But this is really relevant then to students who want to do philosophy, because if you can build those skills, you know, don't be scared off by your parents telling you, uh, you know, oh, what will you do with a philosophy degree? You can do a lot with good philosophical training because doing philosophy well makes you analytically sharp and having good critical thinking skills having good arguing skills, being able to write very clearly. Those are skills that lots of employers want. So philosophy sets you up for med school where you have to be a good critical thinker and you know, doing ethics and bioethics is relevant. Philosophy sets you up for law school. Um, both of those disciplines really like philosophy majors. So I think that's worth getting out there and letting people know. And then also just you know, anecdotally, um, I when I graduated from college, I didn't know what I wanted to do at first. And um, my resume was at a career center and a finance consulting firm saw my resume and they picked me up and they brought me in. So I did that for a couple of years before going to grad school because they were looking for people who were creative, people who were analytical, people who could write well. And they realized that a lot of those people are not just in business school. They're doing other things. So I would tell people who want to study philosophy, study hard, do well, prove that you have those great skills because those are job, job transferable. Could you talk a little bit about When you are developing an idea for a paper, how you separate yourself from the idea and 
especially when it comes to getting feedback, how you internalize that and can separate your own personal opinions towards your idea versus the actual development of the idea for the paper? Yeah, um, this is still always hard. I mean, to be a philosopher, you have to have pretty thick skin because we argue with one another and we criticize one another and we tear each other's arguments down. And that's all in the service of building better arguments and trying to get to the truth. But it can be really devastating to have spent, you know, weeks or months or even years working on an idea and then presenting it to people and then nitpicking every aspect of it and finding problems with it. And sometimes, oftentimes, they're very right and you have to build from scratch again. So separating your ego from the argument is crucial to being able to thrive in this profession and way easier said than done. I mean, I still, you know, paper rejections are the norm, right? I still, you know, have an emotional reaction to every paper rejection I get. So I'm not pretending this is an easy thing to do. But part of getting better at that is always when you're making arguments, thinking about the person who would disagree with you and what would they say and getting better at occupying their mind and charitably reconstructing their argument. So this is the number one thing I tell my students is you have to consider an objection to your argument in your papers and it has to be charitably construed, meaning you have to spin that argument in the best light possible. You can't make a straw man, as we call it. You can't make a weak opponent that you can easily knock down. You have to really, really think, why does my opponent disagree with me? And what's the best argument they would give against my position? And this is good for so many reasons. I mean, first of all, it helps you anticipate what those objections to your own view are going to be. So it makes your own arguments better. But second, it's it's actually an act of empathy, right? It's an act of taking another person's standpoint, taking on their values or their reasons and trying to make sense of their worldview. And I think, you know, we could all agree that we need more of that right now, right? So yeah, that that's sort of the tool for for thinking through objections and thinking through that kind of thing. You just started to touch on it. I was going to ask, how is that? mindset also applicable to the rest of the world. And I think now more than ever, we're going to need that separation between your work and you as a person and a valuable person, because if people are criticizing your work, it's the work that's criticized and not you, the person who created it. If it's criticized properly, I think nowadays we're kind of getting away from criticizing the work and criticizing the people who make it. But that's a separate issue. Yeah. In philosophy, we call that the fallacy of the ad hominem, right? Mm -hmm. Where you attack a person's argument by attacking their character or something they did in the past. And yeah, we should be a little, we should be a little bit, um, uh, we should try to avoid that fallacy. We should really try to take people's arguments for their merits, regardless of what the person is like behind the argument. Be great to see if politics follow that, yeah, that mindset. <laughs> yeah. I think that point about, not making a straw man of the other person's argument is so important too, because especially given the media, given whatever landscape we're currently in, it's so easy to find really weak arguments and very few people put the time in to try to understand at a deep level why the other person might be right. Yeah, for sure. And that's one of the things we try to do in that uh, abortion vaccination paper was say, okay, you guys are making this kind of symbolic move in your protest signs. Let's dig in. Is there a good argument here? Can we just treat this very charitably and very rigorously and just see what comes out of it? With commentating on a lot of the public and what they're doing right now, since so much of it isn't logical, how can you study some of these phenomena in a academic, academically rigorous way? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So a lot of the stuff going on in the Political public debate is just not well-reasoned at all. And it's pretty obvious from the first step. Um, I still think there's value in trying to make arguments and trying to appeal to people's reason. And I realize that might not persuade everybody, but it does persuade some percentage of people. Some percentage of people do care about reasoned argument. And that's our job. That's our job to try to live up to, you know, the high standards of rationality that that we have as humans. And so I don't want to give up on that enterprise, even though I, I, I do sometimes despair at sort of the state of arguments out there right now today. I still have to uphold, you know, this belief that humans can be reasonable. We should definitely strive to be. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I've changed. I think I've done a 180 on the vast majority of the things I grew up believing. And that all happened because of good arguments, right? It just went where the reasons led me. It took me a long time in certain cases, but um, I do think there's some subset of us who care about good arguments and good reasons, and we change our lives based on them. Yeah. I kind of hold myself to 
a saying, strong convictions loosely held, because as I've grown older, I hate apathy more and more. And that's where I like the strong convictions, because be about what you say you're about, but then be open-minded enough to change your opinion. And when a good argument comes along, respect it. But I love that. I'll remember that one. That's a good one. <laughs> Definitely didn't come up with it. I forgot where I heard it, though. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. But. Yeah, I think another thing is the more you know, the more you get educated, you realize that you don't know everything and you sort of have a respect for what you don't know. You're like, oh, there's experts in every single one of these areas. I'm not an expert in all of them. I should have some intellectual humility for areas I know nothing about. And I, I think that only comes with some experience. Yeah. I think it can almost be an empowering process too, after that initial wave of accepting that you're probably wrong. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it allows you to have a freedom when you're going about your life and asking questions. Because if you no longer care about being wrong, but pursuing questions honestly with integrity, I think there's a huge freedom and weight lifted off your shoulders. If you say, I don't know everything, but I'm going to always pursue it, always ask questions and continue to fall short. But that's what makes it like kind of a beautiful process. Yeah, and that goes back to your to your point your point about separating ego from the argument. If we kind of don't if we don't identify with our arguments anymore and we we allow them to be changed or transformed, then it's not an insult to our character to who we are if we change our mind on something. And it's pretty ludicrous to think that we were all just born knowing all the right things, right? We should expect to change our minds quite drastically through the course of our life. Yeah, without a doubt. Kind of jumping back to the adoption argument. Hypothetically, let's say vast majority of these children who need adoption receive it. Does the argument now cease to exist if we save all these people who need rescuing? Can we go back to having our own kids? Yeah, so... The duty to adopt just depends on there being children in need of adoption. If there aren't children in need of adoption, then that particular argument isn't arguing that you need to adopt, right? Mm -hmm. That would be impossible then. Um, it's a whole separate matter whether we should be procreating because there may be independent arguments against procreation that have nothing to do with adoption. And I'm only signaling that because I'm somebody who's very interested in those arguments. And I have what are known as antinatalist leanings. So... Um, I, I think procreation is a very, very morally weighty decision that comes with lots of risks. The person you create is thrown into existence and existence comes with lots of good, but it also comes with lots of bad. And I think we have not, as moral philosophers, but also as a public, really focused on how weighty it is to create a person and subject them to all of the things in life that they have to contend with. So, um, the short, so, you know, to sum up, the duty to adopt argument just depends on there being children in need of adoption, but you can't jump from that to the claim that it's okay to pre procreate otherwise because there's other arguments against procreation, including some of those antinatalist arguments that are out there. What are a few of those? Because personally speaking, when I first heard your stance on some of this, I was like, oh, well, wouldn't that lead to the end of the human race? Now that after talking, I don't think that's the argument. If it is, I would love to hear why, but could you expand more about what some of those beliefs are and how it kind of interacts with our population size and whether we should continue growing, shrinking? Is there an environmental factor? What's kind of happening in this? Yeah. Um, so there could be lots of variations of antinatalism. So you could imagine an antinatalism that says, look, our human population right now is too large, so we should cut back on procreation, but I don't want to go extinct. So, you know, once we get to the right number, then let's 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 go back to procreating at a, you know, a sustainable rate or something like that. You could also imagine an antinatalism that's more extreme that just says human existence is a bad thing. We should go extinct. And there are people who think that. So, so, you know, when you were saying, I wasn't sure if that's where people are taking this argument. Yeah, some people are taking the argument that far. So what are their reasons? Well, humans have caused a lot of misery and pain to one another. They've caused they cause enormous amounts of misery and pain to the animals that we farm. We're talking billions upon billions of sentient beings that we basically torture um, for our own consumption. And 
humans have taken a massive toll on the planet and, and our environment. So, so people who are inclined toward that sort of extreme view are pointing at the amount of harm hum humans have done. And in ethics, we tend to weigh harm doing as far, far worse and more important than good doing. So if you take that view, even though it's true that humans also do a lot of good things and our lives comes with our lives come with a lot of goods, you might think that the moral significance of the bads far outweigh the goods. So I'm not endorsing this position. I'm just suggesting it. Yeah. I think there's something compelling to some of the ideas in the position, whether or not you 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 grab it, you know, whether or not you take it in full. But you know, there's sort of like this optimism about humanity that sometimes overlooks the fact that we have done some pretty terrible things to each other, to animals and to the planet. And and procreation, again, is this weighty thing, puts more humans in the world, it creates more harms. So we should just at least think about what our procreation means for ourselves and for others. How might the argument for adoption change when you're considering older children in the system? Yeah, so the best science we have, the best evidence we have about adopting older children is that the parenting experience can be more difficult. So the older a child is, when they're adopted, the more likely it is that they have had pre-adoption trauma. So they've had something bad happen to them that's caused trauma in their lives. And um, the harder it will be that for them to form secure attachments with their adoptive parents. So it's tricky because on one hand, older age children are just even more desperately in need of adoption. Adoption is known as the best remedy for these traumas. It's the best thing that could happen to them. On the other hand, parents who want to have a certain kind of family life, they're incurring more risks when they adopt older age children. So I don't have a settled conclusion. I just recognize that it's going to be on average, more burdensome to adopt older age children, and that that burden could be the kind of thing that defeats a duty to adopt. What I think it points to is that the duties when it comes to older age children are really um, should really focus on institutional and social change rather than mm -hmm. focusing on what individuals can do in their family life. So we need to change the child welfare system so that children are not stuck in foster homes for years upon years and abused in that process, for instance. I personally think we need, people should need People's rights to their biological children should be relinquished more quickly so that children can get into good, healthy families. So we can change the number of older age children in need of adoption by changing the system. And that's probably, in that case, where most of the work should be done, rather than focusing on, on individuals' choices. It makes a lot of sense. Now, another hypothetical. Say you're incredibly wealthy and you have the finan financial means. You're, say, 50, you're retired. You have the time as well. Is there a limit to your duty to adopt? Could you indefinitely keep adopting as long as you could provide that good life for that child? Well, certainly, if you could and, and wanted to, morality would say that's a very lovely thing for you to do. I, I take it the question is, like, are you required to like, yeah. if you're in that situation and you have that wealth? Not necessarily. So adopting children is not an efficient way to help humanity if that is, if you think that there's moral reason to do that. So that's why I say if you're already committed to wanting to be a parent and it is morally permissible to want to be a parent and to be a parent, then you should adopt rather than procreate. But if the question is just I have lots of money, what should I do with that money? Um you should what you should do is buy mosquito nets. So you can save a life by buying mosquito nets at $4,000 a pop. Um raising a child on average in the US is a quarter of a million dollars from time of birth to 18 years old. So in terms of efficiency, what you can do with that money, you should be donating to the Against Malaria Fund and buying mosquito nets to prevent malaria. Could you talk a little bit more about that impact factor and how people should consider that when there are seemingly so many things that need help? Yeah, so there's a movement um, it's gotten a bad rap lately, but maybe unfairly so, known as effective altruism. I don't mm. know if you all have yeah. heard of it. Um, coming out of some work done by some philosophers at Oxford. Um, and the general idea there is just we should want to do good and we should want to do good efficiently. So, so it makes more sense to spend your money in a way that will save the most lives or make the most human impact than to do another thing that's also very good, but 
not as efficient, right? We'll save fewer human lives or, you know, you could think of it as like, let's say I have a thousand dollars. Should I donate it to the opera and, 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 you know, enrich the artistic lives of the local community or should I donate it to the against malaria fund, right? And help save a life from malaria. And the, and the thought behind effective altruism is that we should be targeting efficient, efficient, effective charities. And that's also an example of, you know, philosophers who's who have taken their work out into the world and tried to do some good with it. And they've done some bad in the process as well. But, you know, if you were asking about as philosophers, what do we do? Well, there's a great example of people who actually started a movement with their work and are, are changing the world in a certain way. Yeah. Not to reduce any of your arguments, but it does seem like a lot of it is be intentional, be critical, like think critically and aim to do the most good you possibly can. And Maybe set aside some of your emotions. Be honest with yourself. Where can I be the most effective and do the most good? And what does that look like? And why do I hold some of the beliefs that I possibly do? I think that's a great message. I probably wouldn't have given this much time and thought to not having my own kids, as that has been something I've always aspired to do one day. But I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed having the opportunity to talk to you both. I appreciate the great questions. Thank you, Professor Ruli. Absolutely. Take care. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.